0: Christ is risen. He's uh, Deacon Alley really buried the lead on uh, our on second thought discussion for this evening. Uh, several of you have said you'd love to see like a calendar of those conversations to know like which ones you want to come to. And um, tonight we're going to be talking about hell. So I know, I know. So if uh, you've never thought about hell or if you'd like to give... Hell, a second thought uh, tonight tonight is for you. Uh, we won't have time to go like super in depth in that conversation, right? But it is gonna be interesting. So uh, join us tonight, again, that's at five o'clock for a conversation and discussion about hell. This past week, we uh, celebrated a, a big holiday for us, uh, not talking about Halloween, although, I hope you did enjoy your Halloween. But All Saints Day was this past week. All Saints Day always falls on the first day of November, and it's a day where we celebrate and we remember the lives of saints, those who we know, those saints that we are aware of, as well as the saints that we are unaware of, the saints that uh, remain unknown, and some who are saints even in our midst, and we just haven't, haven't recognized them yet. I imagine for most of us, We never give a whole lot of thought to the idea of of saints, to sainthood. Like we're aware of them. We're aware that saints are part of the church's history and tradition, but only in a kind of distant, vague kind of way. We know they exist, or at least they once did, but when we think about Saints. When we consider the saints and their lives, they just seem to have lived at such a different time and a different place. And their devotion to Christ seems to have been just otherworldly, that we can't really relate to the saints. Like these people were meant to be saints and that's just not for me. Otherwise I would be one too, right? A couple of examples of just how bizarre some of the lives of the saints were. I wanna introduce you to, uh, this is Saint Denis. I really hope, yes. This is not a Halloween costume, although if you're looking for ideas for next year, Saint Denis would be an awesome costume. Uh, Saint Denis was a bishop in Paris during the third century, so think 200s. And he was known for converting a large number of pagans to Christianity. And if you are a pagan leader and this guy shows up and starts converting all of your followers away from you, it's going to be upsetting. And so you, as a pagan leader, would do what any pagan leader would do, right? You'd go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, this guy's stirring up some trouble. And so Dennis and his fellow missionaries, they ended up being imprisoned for a long time until they were set to be beheaded. And when it was Dennis's turn, he was beheaded with a sword, and it was said that his body picked up his head and walked for a few miles. <laughs> and while he was walking, he preached a sermon the entire way before dropping dead at the site of what is the present-day Basilica of St. Dennis. Any ideas what St. Dennis might be the patron saint of? Headaches, the patron saint of headaches. Another saint I wanna introduce you to, uh, her name is Wilgefortis and she's not a, a, a canonized saint, she's what is known as a folk saint. So she's not officially canonized by the church but she's still venerated by a number of the faithful. And here's the story of Wilgefortis, her father, promised her in marriage to a Moorish king. But what her father didn't know is that she had taken a personal vow of celibacy and being married and remaining celibate are kind of at odds with one another. So, Wilgefortis prayed to God, and this was her prayer, that God would make her repulsive. God would make her repulsive. And as an answer to her prayer, she sprouted a full beard, which ended the engagement. <laughs> her father was so mad, listen to this, that he crucified her. And so this is how we remember the image of Wilgafortis. She is the patron saint of facial hair. I'm not just showing you these pictures to give you good ideas for next year's Halloween costumes. I think oftentimes these are the kinds of stories that we carry around when we think about the saints. They seem so wild and so unrelatable that we just kind of relegate sainthood to a thing of the past and a bizarre thing at that. Or we think of lives that are kind of larger than life. We think about people like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. These people who made an obvious and massive impact in the world. They were holy lives that seemed to be only possible because God has made it so. So again, we think sainthood just isn't for us. Otherwise, God would be making it so. Maybe not making you sprout a beard, but God would be making it so. Part of the way All Saints Day helps us is to remember that there are saints that we are aware of. Saints like Abraham and Moses and Paul, Saint Teresa of Avila, Saint John of the Cross, saints who have been recognized and venerated, whose lives have shaped our own lives. Something about their faithfulness has made our faithfulness possible. But there are countless other saints whose lives are unknown to us, who were never officially canonized by the church, and they never will be. They were hidden lives, hidden lives of faithfulness. They were oftentimes lived in obscurity, and we remember them too on All Saints Day. But we also need to distinguish between not just saints who are known and unknown, but also those who are living among us now. Of course, officially, saints become saints once they die. I I bought my daughter this book on the lives of the saints, and it's this beautifully illustrated book that tells the story of the saints. And I thought, man, this would be a really wonderful, like bedtime book for my daughter. Like it looks like it's geared toward children, and I think it is. But after about three nights of reading this book to her, my daughter came to me and she goes, dad, are we going to read another one of those stories about someone being killed? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, of course, like saints are saints because they earned it, right? All of their stories end tragically. So officially saints become saints after they're dead, but they did have contemporaries. They did have people that they lived with and ate with, people that they served and worked with, people that they bought bread from, people who were in their midst in their day-to-day lives. And the reality is the closer that we get to these people, the harder it is to see them, to recognize them for who they are, for the saints that they are. And part of what we have to do, part of what I want to argue today, is that we have to learn how to see them. We have to learn how to recognize them while they're here, while we live among them. This past week, we took our kids trick-or-treating at uh, Maple Ridge, a really busy neighborhood for trick-or-treating if you've never been and whenever we have our kids in a really busy place, one of the things that we'll often do is make our kids take a look at us, describe what we're wearing, notice what we look like, so that if we get separated from one another, they can describe us, they can identify us, they could pick us out of a crowd or tell another adult who to look for, right? Right? Admittedly, Halloween is a terrible time for that anecdote. Tuesday night, I came straight from a really beautiful wedding that we had here at the church uh, to meet my kids who were like already going door to door. And so I, I showed up wearing my collar and as a, like, dressed up as a priest on Halloween. It, I had one lady who stopped me on the sidewalk and she's like, oh, are you from The Nun? And I said, no, I'm from Sanctuary. <laughs> I blessed one guy. Absolved another, it was great. (laughs) The point is, one of the ways we stay close to God is by learning to identify holy lives. Finding and recognizing other people who are close to God and then staying close to those people. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Part of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is to remember that our faith doesn't come to us in a vacuum. We aren't figuring this out all by ourselves. Our faith is one that we have inherited, one that's been handed down by faithful lives who've gone before us. And part of how we know what it is to be faithful is to recognize who those faithful lives are Who are those faithful voices speaking among us and to us and let their life shape our life? I was talking to Bishop Chris about this last night and he said it to me this way. You have to be able to recognize holy lives in order to recognize Christ. And we have to recognize Christ in order to recognize what God is doing. When we can't identify those kinds of lives and those kinds of voices, then being confronted with the question of what is God doing in the world? How is Christ active in the world? is gonna seem like a question that we don't know how to answer because we have no sense of who is speaking and who is doing the kind of thing that God imagines us to be doing. This is why today's gospel reading takes us back to the Beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. What Jesus is doing is teaching us how to recognize the saints, showing us where and when we can expect to find them. The saints are those who are blessed. They are the meek, they are the mourners, the merciful, the peacemakers. But notice at the end of Matthew's gospel, the righteous are shown to be righteous not just by their own suffering, not just by their own poverty, their own mourning, their own hunger, their own meekness, but by what they have done for others who are suffering, you remember what Jesus says to them. He says, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Here's the point. The righteous did what was right without knowing exactly what they were doing, as we all should. They saw someone who was hungry and gave them food. They saw someone who was thirsty gave him something to drink. But remember, the righteous respond, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? Or we saw you thirsty and gave you something to drink? The righteous do the righteous thing without knowing who or exactly what they're doing. But the saints, what distinguishes the saints from the rest of us, even the righteous, is that they don't just do what is right for those who are in need. They recognize those who are in need as Christ. They don't just do the right thing for right thing's sake. They meet the needs of others. They see to the needs of the needy, recognizing the needy as Christ. It's by recognizing the needy as Christ that they become Christ's recognizability. We know how to recognize Christ by those who recognize Christ in other people. The saints are those who mourn, but they're also people who bring comfort to the morning, They are the ones who are hungry and thirsty, but they're also those who fill the hungry with good things. They suffer persecution. They are in need of mercy, but act in ways that are merciful toward the unjust. And it's in this way that they both bless us and draw us into blessing. That is how we recognize the saints. And we must, we need to see them because without them, we can't see Jesus. For better or for worse, that's just how God has arranged it, that oftentimes the best glimpse we will ever get of Jesus is through someone else. And if we can't see Jesus, we can't be who we're called to be. And if we can't be who we're called to be, we won't do for others what God has made us to do. And what God has made us to do is to be people who love our neighbor. As Martin Luther, the great reformer, another holiday we celebrated this week. Martin Luther once said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. I know I shared with you some pretty unbelievable stories of the saints, and there are more. There are many, many more unbelievable stories. If you wanna go on a journey this afternoon, uh, do a little Google search on Padre Pio. So search Padre Pio, and then get this, by location, and just let your mind be blown. There were like reports of this guy being in two places at the same time. It'll make your head spin. But even though the extraordinary stuff is fun to hear about, it's the ordinary stuff that really makes them saints. And it turns out it's the ordinary stuff that makes saints what my friend Rowan Williams calls the only persuasive argument for the existence of God. Saints are people who live what we know, what we can refer to as, as trustworthy lives. Again, in Rowan Williams' words, the saint takes responsibility for God's believability. There's something about their lives, the shape of their lives, their attitude toward other people, the kind of patience that they have with their children, that we can look at them and we can believe that God exists because they're living a life that announces and shows us what God looks like in the world. The saint doesn't look like big, exciting, demonstrative acts of God. Sometimes it does, but the saints know what we need to learn and what the world needs to see. And that's what a life looks like when it chooses to let God in. A life that has accepted the invitation to live in the light of Christ not to make themselves incredible, not to make themselves an insider or somehow superior, but to show the rest of us what a life that is opaque and fractured and broken and imperfect can look like if it's bathed in the light of God. These trustworthy lives help us to see what is most real, what is most deserving of our attention and our affection of our time and our energy. This is why every morning before I sit down to join people from all over the world and praying the morning office, I take a moment to look at this little icon I was given of St. Anthony. St. Anthony, if you don't know, is the father of desert monasticism, someone who devoted his entire life to the work of prayer. And I recognize that before I can sit down and do that work, I need his life and I need his prayers to help me learn how to give my own life to prayer. We need those kinds of trustworthy lives to be aware of their stories and how their faithfulness shapes the way that we're faithful. A quick example and then I'll be done. In Numbers 13, the Lord tells Moses to send 12 spies, including a man named Caleb into the land of Canaan. This is the land that God is going to give to the Israelites. So they go, the story says, they spend 40 days scouting the land, they make a pit stop in Hebron, and then they return. But the Jewish rabbis throughout the centuries noticed a kind of odd detail in this text, a kind of discrepancy that suggested all the spies didn't go out together. And one of the things that they speculated was that Caleb, sensing that these other spies were intimidated by the task, that they were somehow disheartened by the job that's in front of them. Rather than going with them, he stole away from the other spies so that he could make his way to Hebron. And what's there? Well, this is the cave of the patriarchs. This is where his ancestors were buried, people like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. Caleb steals away from these voices of insecurity, these voices of intimidation in order to be close to the lives he knew to be faithful witnesses, representatives of God and God's believability. He goes off to a space that he trusts is holy because here are the lives that were responsible for God. But the point here is not that we have to separate ourselves in order to find God. God does not give preference to prayers that are prayed in holy places or at holy times or prayed by holy people. That's not the point. The point is that God is present to us everywhere at all times and all places. And it's us who are rarely, if ever, really present to God. That is why Caleb steals away from the spies not to get to a place where God is present to him, but to get to a place where he can be fully present to God. And he needed the lives of the faithful to help him do that. He needs the presence of faithful lives to lead him into that place of faithfulness, that place of his own presence and attentiveness to God and to God's activity. This is what the saints do for us. The saints teach us that we need to get away from the clamor of anxious voices that so often crowd out the voice of God in our lives. Before we watch the news, before we make a statement about what's going on in the world, before we engage in the comment section that you shouldn't have read to begin with, before any of that, we need to get as close as we can to our mothers and our fathers of the faith to these faithful, trustworthy lives that have taken responsibility for God's believability in all of the right ways, the believability of God's goodness, the believability about God's mercy and his loving kindness toward us and to all whom God has made, the believability in God's promise to prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. We need to recognize those saints This is why we need the saints. They are the space where our prayers can begin to come clear, where we can think and listen and hope and act more faithfully. This means before you pray, look at the lives that have been lived prayerfully in the direction of your prayer. Before you pray for revival, consider the life and the death of William Seymour. William Seymour was the holiness preacher who initiated the Azusa Street revival, but he was also the child of emancipated enslaved parents. Consider the burden of racism, both in and out of the church, that he endured his entire life before you pray a prayer for revival. Consider the way that revival ended up costing him nearly every meaningful relationship in his life and any ounce of influence that he had. He's betrayed by those who are closest to him and eventually dies in obscurity. We don't think about that story when we pray for revival. Before you open your mouth or make a post or begin to pray about what's happening on the news in Gaza and in Israel, consider the life of Margaret Gaines. Consider the life of this missionary who even when everyone else told her, don't go, you're not allowed to go. She put hundred dollars in her pocket and got on a plane to go and serve the people of Palestine. She lived with them and worked with them and ate with them, starting schools, starting churches, living among the Palestinian people. Learn from them what prayer looks like. Learn from them what obedience looks like. Learn from them what holiness and sacrifice looks like. And then consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, as the Hebrew writer tells us. One final example of why we need the saints that is a little closer to home for us at Sanctuary This past week on All Saints Day, one of our deacons, John Habibi. If you don't know John and Mina Habibi, you should. He shared this with us on All Saints Day. Here are John's words to us. He said, happy All Saints Day. I thought I'd share a bit about a saint that has directly impacted my family's life. Lillian Trasher was born in Florida in 1887 to a Roman Catholic family Through various encounters, she discerned a call on her life to go to Africa, specifically to Egypt. She broke off her engagement 10 days prior to her wedding and went to Asiut, where her ministry began. Shortly after arriving in Asiut, she went to care for a dying mother. Upon her arrival and finding that the woman had already passed, she was guided then to her now orphaned daughter. This infant child was severely malnourished and would have no hope for a future. The baby's grandmother could not care for the child and planned out of desperation, I think, to throw the baby into the Nile. Lillian offered to take the baby into her care and thus began the Lillian Trasher Orphanage. In her first eight years in Egypt, her ministry grew to 50 orphans and eight widows. Later, she would expand her mission to include a home for the blind. In the course of her ministry, she made room for one Mary Habibi and her toddler son, Yusuf Habibi, my father. Fleeing for their lives during the Nakba in 1948, they found a place to live and grow. The orphanage was often under-resourced and able to provide less than the bare minimum but it was a place for people who would otherwise have even less than that. Mama Lillian, as she became affectionately known, was a force of her own. And now, even after her passing in 1961, the Lillian Trasher Orphanage remains a place for the marginalized and some of Egypt's most desperate. John said, I know that veneration of the saints, especially prayers to the saints, is strange to many. I myself am still becoming accustomed to it. But I thought I would make this opportunity to do just that. And here's his veneration of Mama Lillian. Dearest Mama Lillian, you followed the leading of the spirit even when you knew not his purpose. You provided the orphan a home even when you had not a house. You fed the starving even when you had not food to eat. You gave rest to the hopeless, even when you found none for yourself. You acted confidently in faith for those who had no hope. You did not leave the motherless and orphan, but came to their aid. You honored the widow, not leaving her alone and forgotten. You gave vision to the blind, refusing to see them as a burden. Teach us to give even when it seems we have nothing to offer, to go where God leads, even when we know not why it is we go. Bless us to embody this love and care you gave to the motherless and forgotten of society. Pray for us as we discern our call to those who experience tragedy and injustice. May we have boldness to act and confidence to speak. In the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, amen.